Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Josh Galecki. And today, we're talking about Starseed Pilgrim. Developed and published by Draken, the game was released on Steam in 2013, and we'll be talking spoilers, so heads up if you're sensitive to that. Believe it or not, spoilers are actually quite important for this very minimalistic puzzle platformer game, so do not sleep on that warning. Yeah, this is definitely a game that's sort of about the discovery of where things are and what you're supposed to do with it. And obviously, we'll be talking about pretty much all of that here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Consider this a deep dive into the mechanics and the entire play space, uh, which is, as Josh said, all about discovery. So if you want to discover for yourself, uh, we'll see you after a few hours. Please come back. <laughs> And welcome back. Well, as to why we're playing Starseed, um, this is a game, you know, it's been in kind of the critical consensus for a while now as, you know, something well worth playing. I'm part of this game-making club called Tiny Mass Games. I've been doing that since the beginning of this year, since January. And early on, uh, a few months in, we actually had Droken, uh, the the developer of this game come and give a talk to the uh, to our kind of game making club about um, making small games, making short form games, and sharing some of his wisdom he's learned over the years. In uh, preparation for that talk, I went and replayed Starseed, and I dragged Brian along for the ride. Yeah, this is a game that I actually did play back when it came out way back in 2013, um, because I. Uh, <sighs> probably overly ambitiously considered myself someone that was interested in um, what was being talked about in game design critical circles. And uh, predictably back then, I bounced off of it pretty hard. Um, I just don't think I quite had the chops for it. I still don't exactly think I have the chops for it. But um, we'll talk more about that as we go. It is nevertheless a very interesting game to me. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing too. Like, um, People find different things they like about games, and some people like diving into a more abstract way to think about things or try to categorize or uh, put things, you know, organize things, mechanics, games, genres, all that. Uh, A lot of people enjoy doing that, some over beers, some over the internet. Yeah, and this is a game that I think, for better or for worse, is a very pure distillation of what... um, you can get at in terms of mechanical exploration, in terms of systems design or game design. Um, There's just a a lot here to look at, both positive and negative, depending on your perspective and your proclivities as a gamer um, or game player, uh, that, you know, lends itself to a lot of discussion. What works, what doesn't? Um, You know, obviously this was even a thing at the time, you know, this game was a finalist for excellence in design awards at the IGF. And despite the fact that it didn't win that award <laughs> that year, um, it was probably still the most talked about game in the field, I would reckon. Oh, for sure. Although um, there were some good finalists that year, if I remember. This game, and you know, we mentioned the word Draken a couple of times. Uh, Draken is the studio or video game developer name uh, for Alexander Martin, who is a, a Toronto-based game developer who... Uh, He's gone on to create several other games as well. A very, I I guess I would say, an influential person in the field. Yeah, there's a number of, I guess, efforts or initiatives he's been a part of. Um, He has a a small Discord server where he just chats with other people about uh, making games. He said he was trying to, like, remake the feel of the early TIG source forums, uh, which were really big for indie games back in the day. Like, I think Aquaria came out of there. I think um, Spelunky was another big name game that came out of that. So it was kind of like an um, early game club website where people just tried to make and develop indie games. Um, and he was also uh, has a website called letterclub.games, uh, th- where people go into kind of those abstract game mechanics, what they mean and why they work. Uh, so definitely a more intellectual look at that side of things. Yeah, it does strike me as like even this game, its feel, the people that are interested in it and discuss it, like does strike me as like a more academic bent on what is going on in the gaming scene. Um, you mentioned TIG Source. Uh, I, I call it TIG Source. You said TIG Source, but 
uh, the Indie Gaming Source, which was, uh, as you mentioned, sort of a big blog, uh, joint blog community back in the day for people developing games. And I found a few of some of my favorite early indie games through that site. Uh, a couple of the ones you mentioned, Josh, I remember Cave Story, even though it was developed earlier than that, had a post there, you know, where it was on display, um, which is one of my all-time faves. Uh, I remember Knight, K-N-Y-T-T, was also on there. Um, uh, uh-huh. Yeah, so a, a lot of a lot of projects uh, have that TIG source pedigree and um, a lot of, say, probably a, a lot of place for inspiration and community in that early indie scene, for sure. There was also a uh, little-known game called Minecraft that came out of those forums. <laughs> Minecraft, you say? Never heard of it. This is probably one of my kind of like old dad yells at clouds moments, but uh, I was one of the earlier players of Minecraft because uh, I saw it on the forums there, and it was like so early compared to even what they had in, uh, I don't know, 2012 or 13 or something, um, just in terms of gameplay and what was there. But the basic idea of the entire world is made of blocks and just go block away was very much there. and. People just loved sharing pictures of everything. Yeah, I remember playing a, a Java executable off that site that I got for free. Um, so yeah, I, I, you probably actually introduced me to it now that I'm thinking about it. But um, yeah, let's get back to our, our subject at hand, shall we? Um, <laughs> uh, so we're here to talk about Starseed Pilgrim. Um, I'll give my sort of short explanation of it, and, and then maybe you can tell me what you think of it, because I think depending on... Um, when you approached it and your mindset, it's entirely different. But uh, from my perspective, Starseed Pilgrim is about you, a small little guy, being thrown into the world on a metal platform with no particular instructions under the words, Gain from loss one does not measure, but broken hearts yield Starseed treasure. Um, and you are in a white void, and you have no idea what the hell to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very true, very true. I think uh, that's... One of the things this game is most well known for is the lack of instructions and tutorials about what you're supposed to do or how to do it. And I think hand in hand with that is that kind of joy of exploration and discovery. Um, When you do realize there is something to do or what the game is asking you to do, um, it feels like a very found um, found sort of thing. Like, you feel like you invented it, almost, uh, rather than, like, you were led to it. Yeah, I think that's <clears throat> that's an interesting thing, because, like, right away, you're you're kind of just there, there's no tutorial, um, you're, you're given very minimal instructions. Uh, I think when you, when you do first, eventually figure out how to press down to go into a world, um, then you are given another prompt, which is, I think, press space to grow. Um, and, and and then you're off to the races, right? You're, you're, you're already sort of seeing a couple different things that are happening right away. You know, you start off in one world, you teleport to another, the ground beneath you changes colors from gray to brown, and you're told to touch space to grow. And then, uh, <laughs> then you start figuring out what they mean by that. You are growing these seeds, uh, the titular star seeds, I suppose, uh, which, you know, are in turn generating blocks, and you're just kind of growing this little symphonic garden of blocks. And then the world punches you in the face because you have no idea what to do, and uh, <laughs> and you fall to your death, most likely. <laughs> I mean, you gotta have those platforming skills, right? You gotta grow the platforms that you jump to and everything. Oh, but I think it is interesting. This is, um, I think, 2013 it came out. Like, um, indie games were sort of coming into their own at that point, and the space bar is one of your, you know, do-it-all um, keys, I guess, buttons, yeah, what have you. You use a space bar to do everything, and for a game to kind of introduce one of its main verbs as grow was back then pretty unique and I still think pretty unusual even if you do find games covering a more um more diverse uh setting than blow things up with a gun <laughs> these <laughs> yeah, days it's true. these days you know I do find it interesting that despite all of the like um press and writing words spilled words said about this game over the years that um it's kept 
pretty much everything about its initial launch intact. You know, this was a game that was that only ever got a Steam release because every IGF finalist got a deal from Steam to launch on the platform. So mm-hmm. it would probably still just be on TIG Source otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it didn't change its control scheme. To your point, Josh, uh, space is the, the do thing button, which is to say plant a seed. Um, and you're controlling with the keyboard. Otherwise, uh, the arrow keys specifically, not WASD, no controller support, uh, just arrow keys and space. Uh, and up is to jump. <laughs> so not, not even a jump button, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is intentional. Mm-hmm. And I I think that's really interesting that like it it's decided to just remain in this sort of perfect encapsulation of exactly what it was when it came out. Uh, no patches, no, you know, updates in terms of usability over the years it is it is what it was and always will be no it's very true it's very much like an artifact of those times i think because of that um i think part of that too is that um i think that steam's audience has changed a lot over the years too like um generally speaking you need controller support you need to have um People will give you bad reviews if you don't have remappable controls on a game you put out on Steam these days. There's higher expectations, uh, which can be a good thing in terms of accessibility and everything else, too. But um, it does mean you have to... uh, It's harder to put a quirky little game out there without it becoming at least of a certain size. Um, that it like justifies, okay, let's add in remappable controls now and things like that. Widescreen, ultra widescreen support and all. We're probably going far afield for the initial discussion of this game's having not even gotten to the core mechanics yet. But I think the reason for that is because Steam is, you know, it's a commercial platform. Whereas TigSource, where this game existed before that, was much less of one, right? Like people always had an idea that they could, yeah, make money on games, but I feel like that was much less the point on TigSource than it is on, say, Steam, right? Steam is a marketplace. TigSource is basically a creator blog. Yes, I'll agree with that. But at the same time, I think there's audience qualities and characteristics. I would say that uh, Steam gamers are different in terms of what they want and what they expect than Switch gamers. Exactly. They want products, whereas the TigSource people wanted projects. (laughs) Fair, fair enough. But bringing things back. Yes, exactly. Let's talk a little bit about what you're actually doing in this game. Um, I talked a little bit, or we talked a little bit about uh, pressing space to grow. Uh, what are we growing, Josh? The star seeds, of course. Um, you start off with, I think, 10 seeds with you that when you press space, um, blocks start emerging from the ground. The blocks, I think there's six different types of blocks um, that each have different properties and do different things, um, six or seven or eight. Um, But a lot of the game is learning how they grow and how they interact with each other. Yeah, there are eight types of blocks. Um, yeah, do we want to r- run through them real quick, or is that too much detail? <laughs> oh, let's let's go through them. Uh, you All start right. off with everyone's least favorite block, the sand block, this tan guy that <laughs> spreads outwards and drops down in sand waterfalls, and also um, you can't jump when you're on it. Well, since you chose the least favorite block, I will give my favorite block, uh, the green block, which produces a twisty sort of vine that has a relatively random length, and it contains... Uh, seeds or fruit uh, that eventually turn into hearts after a certain condition is met, which we'll talk about later. Both of these blocks can produce, or both of these seeds can produce a large number of blocks. Other seeds, not so much. There's the blue block, which creates a trampoline block for you to jump off of. You can get higher, but it's also just a single block. Exactly. And then there is uh, the orange block, which is probably my second favorite block, which is it develops a line of blocks in a straight line. Usually this is horizontal in one direction or another, depending on uh, where it's placed corresponding to an edge. But if there's no edge in sight, it will expand upward at a random length. Love those orange blocks. You're taking all the good ones. All right, I'll go with the ice block (laughs) next. This is the cyan light blue block that expands outwards in a kind of plus shape pattern. Yeah, an important thing about the cyan block is that another mechanic that we have yet to touch on, the darkness, 
can never fully penetrate it, meaning it can sort of act as an island uh, against the encroaching darkness. Very good to have that as a buffer, yeah. Indeed. Speaking of buffers, the next one I will mention is the purple block, which acts as sort of a nexus. It forms like a small structure that expands out first vertical, then horizontal, then vertical and horizontal in sort of a nexus. Like it creates a uh, it creates a tight-knit block of blocks, for lack of a better word. And they're, uh, they're purple, and they resist darkness, as in the, the darkness is slow to take them. Yeah, I, I always think of them as uh, castle blocks. Looks yeah. like a little crenellations you get. Fortification, yeah. They feel fortified. All right, uh, I'll go with the bomb block next. This is a red block, which if you dig into it after it grows, um, will create a large area of red blocks around it, which is great for like getting up to a new area yourself. Or here's another thing. If the void attacks a um, unexploded red block, the red block still explodes and replaces the void. Yes. Uh, red blocks are very important for navigation, just in terms of getting verticality and uh, a lot of a lot of options. Uh, red blocks are very helpful in that regard. But I will talk about the final block type we haven't mentioned yet, the block type we should have mentioned first, which is the pink seed stack block, which produces a column of pink blocks extending upward infinitely. However, uh, you can only reach a certain height with your jump. But if you destroy it and dig into it, it will give you more seeds. So this is how you continue to grow. People who are good at this game can pretty much play a level forever because they know how the mechanics work. You're also guaranteed to get a heart block, I think, every sixth seed. Um, so as long as you're getting more than six seeds, six blocks from your heart block, which you can do if you know what you're doing, um, then you can keep on pressing on. So the interesting like variables, I think, between all these different block types that, that we mentioned, you know, the growth shape, the direction, the number of blocks it has, the speed at which it grows, the speed at which it, you know, whether it overrides things or not, um, how fast the black void corrupts it. Um, all of these are sort of variables with how these things interact with each other and the world. And it's what makes the whole Star Sea Pilgrim thing kind of work from a... Um, a diversity and randomness perspective, like as you mentioned, Josh, you're guaranteed a, a pink one every six or something like that. I don't know the exact numbers, but um, the bottom line is the game is tuned within an inch of its life to make sure that things are always possible, but not always easy. And there is an <laughs> element of randomness that can be pretty infuriating if you're me. <laughs> yeah, those effing sand blocks, I tell you, they just make yeah. my life harder. Yeah, and you chose to open with the sand block. <laughs> um, Just get it out of the know. way. That's what I did every time. I'm like planting it somewhere unimportant and then just abandoning it afterwards. I'm sure it's useful for, I think that's the only way you could really like build downwards. Mm -hmm. um, it is. But, but the fact that eh, it impedes your, eh. the fact that it impedes your jump and lets you basically not have the option of vertical movement upwards is a killer. You can easily trap yourself with it. Besides the seeds and the jumping, the important other thing is digging, which you can dig left, right, and down, but importantly, you can't dig mid-air. Uh, so a lot of this platforming comes from planning out your seed path and making sure you can get to get you can go back to your heart block that's been growing before it gets overtaken by the void and still have a path back to where you're growing things. Yeah, we've talked about this void uh, now quite a bit. Maybe we should actually enumerate what it is. So when you start every level of Star Sea Pilgrim, you are, as we mentioned, on sort of a, uh, a brown square block. And at the bottom of it is a black void. And throughout the course of your playtime, that, that black void will expand outward from, from its initial starting point to eventually take over that entire square and then spread along all of the various blocks that you have created growing out of that. So you are effectively racing against the void to uh, expand outward, find uh, something, whatever, something. 
<laughs> what you eventually find that something to be are these uh, stars that you come across with when you get far away enough from that initial island. Um, they're stars that have, you know, a little white star on a black background. Um, and your goal is to build platforms that go up to connect to these stars, at which point the void starts expanding from those stars as well. Yeah, it's interesting how you find these these black, you know, um, dots with the stars, and, and you're like, oh, that's something new. How exciting. Let's connect to it. And then immediately you're like, oh, no. Oh, oh no. No, 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 no. I did not want to do that. <laughs> Lots of moments in this game revolve around the feeling of triumph followed by an immediate oh shit um, <laughs> and i think that's kind of like the the calling card of this game is like yes shit <laughs> <laughs> which is it's kind of like a fun conversation with a game developer at that point too where you realize this is what they want me to learn and oh snap yeah oh no <laughs> what have what have i done but you feel like your move has been anticipated and you were supposed to do it, but also here's a new twist. It's like playing chess with an omniscient asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually the void catches up with you, because of course it does. And then you swap to the dual space. To me, this was the most interesting aspect of this game as a platformer. Yeah, I've heard this called the flip world or flip space um we'll use these terms interchangeably i think probably and uh yes this is super interesting like uh what i i think the first thing you realize about this space or at least one of the early things that i learned about this is that it's an inversion of all of the building that you have done to date so everything that used to be the void that you could jump through is now hard space and everything that used to be hard which is things you could stand on walk across jump to are now the open space that you are traversing. Uh, yeah, very very much so. Like those blocks that you grew and you laid are now the tunnels that you are going back through to try to make it back to the beginning. Yeah, and uh, the first thing, or one of the things you see in here when you appear in the, the flip space or the, the dark world um, is hold H to lose your way, which uh, I think is also very evocative and, and good. Um, but you'll also see um, hearts floating in the void, which, if you're observant, you'll notice correspond to where fruit on the green blocks in the positive space were. There are two major things that these hearts get you. One of them in the flip space is that you get a heart and you can do a little levitation. You get a little bubble around you and you get to float upwards. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that they contribute to your first real meta goal in this game, which is to accumulate these seeds or hearts uh, in the flip space, find one of those stars that you had seen on the overworld and said, oh shit, when you connected it to your structure, um, which in the flip space becomes a key. And finally... Use the, using that key and collecting the hearts on the way back to your origin point, you can open a gate and return to your permanent world, which is where we initially departed from before going to the light space with the brown block. Yeah, where the void, there's no void in this um, world with the metal island. Uh, but if you bring back hearts with you, uh, if you get through there, they become seeds in the main um, the main world where you can grow them and you can link up with other islands. So let's do a quick recap because this is probably very confusing in words. You start off in the persistent overworld, the white world that you initially landed in with the gray metal uh, starting block. You then go to a random world where you build, find stars, create fruit, and eventually succumb to the void where you go to the dark world, the flip world. You gather keys, you gather the hearts, and you return to the start, hopefully a little richer in terms of seeds so you can expand outward in your persistent world. Did I get that all right? That's right. Good rounding. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's the first loop that you, uh, <laughs> you understand <laughs> about this game. <laughs> 
once you are in the real world and you have the seeds to go out there and now you know how to use them, how to build out, uh, you do expand outwards and there's no void. So it's a little more common, um, a little more like, I think, chill paste, maybe like it's just a chill time out there because, um, you know, you can go back and you can grab more hearts from the next light world you go to. Uh, but you build out and you come to these other islands. Yeah, so you you eventually will find uh, an island, another gray island out in the void, and it has another little pilgrim that looks a lot like you, but is a different color on it. Um, and interestingly, uh, in the same way that in the center of it, there is an entrance to a world, if you stand where that pilgrim is and enter their world, uh, you assume their color, and you enter a new random world. Uh, you know, a, a pilgrimage world. I think we're calling these pilgrimages from here on out. Yes? Works for me. All right. So each pilgrimage, where you are a different color, has slightly tweaked mechanics. And this was endlessly confusing for me the first time I entered one of these worlds, because I didn't understand why nothing was working the way it was supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was probably my third or fourth pilgrim where I realized things were different. Uh, when I got the pilgrim where you dig in a cross shape instead of just a single block. I'm like, oh, oh, that's different here. Because I had a pilgrim or two before where I just, yep. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, this is going on here. I'm a different color. Yeah, in, I think the thing that confused me the most about this is it, it strikes me that the first one you're going to find probably is the green one, right? Like it's just off to the right. I don't know. It was the first one for me at least. I never went to the right. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, never mind then. What I'm saying is the first ones that are probably most you know, close to you in your, your hub world are like the changes in the mechanics are subtle and the colors are similar to what your your starting color is, right? And that that in, that in itself kind of confused me a little bit because like the color change was slight, the tweaks, the mechanics were kind of slight. And as you mentioned, Josh, once you get to like, I think I ended up with three or four of these. And once you get to some of the further away ones, like the changes are quite noticeable. Um, uh, and I looked up what some of the later ones are because uh, as much as I, you know, enjoyed my time discovering this game, um, I'm done. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah, they, they become quite profound later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the final goal of the game which is uh, not something I got to. Uh, I don't think. I think you probably got farther in this game than me, even. Uh, but each of the pilgrims has, uh, when you go into their world, they have a, they have a void exit that's not just a single star, but it's three stars. And I believe that if you connect an island so that there's, uh, you grow a garden that touches three keys. And the three star, and you collect all those keys, and you bring it to the three star, it becomes a gate you can go into and go to a special puzzle room. Yeah, and the first time I did this, uh, I did not take the time to save up any additional seeds or collect any of the hearts that I had connected to that, that puzzle room. And so I entered that room thinking like, oh, I, I did a big goal. I must be a good boy. But I entered it <laughs> com completely without any proper, you know, any understanding of what that meant. And what's through those gates is a challenge. And you need seeds to do that challenge. Um, and a lot of seeds, probably. Uh, and so I quickly said, well, I fucked that up and jumped to my death. <laughs> <laughs> you lost <laughs> your I, way home, boy. <laughs> and, and I never got back to another three three-star room <laughs> so <laughs> oh that's fair that's fair yeah i never got to i never even got to one myself um but i do know that each of them is a designed room like none of them are randomized the same yep. way that the islands or other things can be yeah, and they're just hilariously like the, the only one that i ever got to was just so hilariously difficult it was just like <laughs> You, you can see right away what the goal was. Since this is something that very few people will see, I'll be very light in terms of my description of it. But you could see your goal pretty clearly, but it just seems physically impossible. Um, <laughs> it, it was like everything I knew about the mechanics to that point was just shattered in a moment 
when I realized that I had no idea what I was actually doing to this point anymore. It was the most like turn myself on my head moment that I have experienced in a game, I think. <laughs> yeah. It, tur- it, it, it turns your whole understanding of the game and its possibilities based on its head, kind of, which is discouraging, but also like, I don't know, humbling, discouraging, humbling, horrifying. Use your adjective here. <laughs> a lot of emotions for such a small production value kind of game. Yeah, I think it was mostly just like, boy, I don't even know how to describe it quite, but just a feeling of like, oh, I'm I'm never going to get this. And um, like, I, I, I could see where it was going, kind of. And like, hypothetically, I think I understand how it could be possible. But given the amount of sheer luck and ballsiness and exactly the right ha- thing happening at the right time that even required me to get there, you know, in my several hours of playtime, uh, there was just no way I was going to amass continual several hours in a row that looked like that and progress from that point on. So it kind of, it kind of was the end for me. Um, well, if it uh, <laughs> makes you feel better, you again, you got farther than I did in the game, so that's worth something. Yeah, and and you know, I'm. I'm glad that I was able to sort of see what the play space was going to evolve into. I think this game has a really interesting thing where it sort of has these nested and progressive challenges where your first challenge is just to explore and figure out the blocks and the seeds, and then you realize there's more out there. So you bring back your first seeds, and you use a key, and you explore more, and you find more islands, and it's like intrinsically motivated gameplay distilled like 700 times over, and so you have like 200 proof intrinsic gameplay being ejected directly into your brains um and like that's great for some people like i'm certainly someone who can get wrapped up in a game's mechanics and like have fun for its own sake and things like that but usually i'm a little more extrinsically motivated than that so this kind of fell flat for me after a bit i think this game is such an interesting case study i feel like like you said like a three-word review I just came up with that I'm not going to use instead of my real one is well-designed playground because it is that kind of like it's asking you to just play around with things and then it's giving you like challenges off there. Oh, there's a star off to the right there. Um, I wonder what happens if I go up and build it. And then when you do th- when you meet the one challenge, you get met with another challenge, but all in a very kind of like non-directed sort of way. Yeah, it, it's. An, I think that's true, except for the fact that there's these big walls that the game puts up. Like, there was a point in time where I was like, yeah, I can count on getting a key about 50% of the time I enter a pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And obviously that, that started to not be the case by the time I was done playing with the game. You know, I could at least count on getting a key pretty regularly so that I could, you know, make progress in the, the first sort of meta challenge, which is to say getting back and building out further in the hub world. And and that felt good, right? Like I, you know, I understood the play space that I was currently operating in and was able to make progress there. But then like once I understood like these challenge rooms and like what that meant in terms of the next meta goal, I was just like, oh, this is like a quadratic equation of, or an exponential growth in terms of challenge that this game is putting in front of me. And I think that was the harsh part was like, it was in... It was an exponential curve of challenge increase and not a linear one. I think part of the issue is that things aren't signposted or introduced well. I think the general layers in the general meta of the game are very well done. Like you said, you meet a challenge and it meets you with another challenge. But it doesn't do you a good good job of like... Sometimes letting you know there's a there there. I'm thinking back to my 2013 or 2014 playthrough of this, the first one, where I bounced pretty hard after an hour or so of playing. And what happened was I got a key and I got back to the main world and I had these seeds. So I grew the seeds and then I dug through them and I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Now I guess I just go back and get more seeds now. Like I didn't make the connection that I was supposed to build 
off the island and find other islands. And so to me, it was like there was there was no there there. It's just like I don't know why people are talking about this game so much. Um, and one of the interesting things talking to uh, Droken during the um, game making club uh, talk that he was giving was that he never really meant this to be like so many people talked about this game, how it doesn't tell you what to do and lets you figure things out on his own. And he said that was kind of accidental. And he even, um, he mentioned he had like a phase in his life where he thought that was his thing as a game developer because people talked about it (laughs) and how much they loved it so much. So he really leaned into it there. Um, but I, I think it was maybe like early game dev, not signposting those moments appropriately or like, giving you that little bit of direction you want. And when you combine that with some of the short form poetry that displays at certain key moments in the game, I think the poetry made it sound deeper in a way or more intentional. Um, when he said he just likes those little, like the, the vibe of just a short phrase or poetry hanging around or something. And it wasn't like meant to be paired as a, here's your instruction book. It's a poem that doesn't make sense here. Right. No, no, no. I, I totally get that. And like the short poem thing, like I think it adds to the, um, the atmosphere. I think my, my non used three word review is going to be evocative esoteric experimentation. Um, <laughs> Because you're right, like the the poetry is kind of a thing that lends to the air of mystery that, you know, pervades the starting off of this game. And then eventually it just sort of fades in the background. It, it could basically by the end of your playthrough be graffiti, you know, it's just there, you know, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's art for for art's sake that someone drew on the wall. It has nothing to do with the, the you know, the place that it was done, uh, except when it does. Um, but (laughs) (laughs) you know, no one recommends this game because, oh, you just got to read the poetry, but, um, (laughs) it uh, it definitely adds to the vibe of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it, it highlights about, it, it highlights what's nice about the discovery in this game is like, oh, I might see one of those weird little poems again, if I continue to explore out into the void and who knows, it might say something real weird. And (laughs) You know, even the game Starseed Pilgrim, or the, the name rather, the name Starseed Pilgrim, is evocative, right? Like, it, it's two—it's a combination of two words you don't hear very often. Like, as far as I'm aware, having Googled the namespace for this pretty unique game title, uh, a starseed is like a new agey term about a person who thinks they're like, you know, a soul from another planet, which is interesting—an interesting idea, but hmm. you know, batch batch it. Um, <laughs> and then a, a pilgrim is, you know, I, we all know what a pilgrim is. It's the people that go to explore and evangelize a new place. So, like, what is that saying about this game that, you know, about what is what is trying to get across in terms of its purpose and what you're doing in it? And the answer is probably nothing. It's probably just something that was Googleable. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a fucking good name is what I'm saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, just one of those ones that kind of grips you with like uh this name is i call it uh pregnant with meaning like right, yeah. you know it's just gotta mean something yeah and and maybe it does but uh, i sure as hell don't know what it is um <laughs> so while you're you're planting your little garden and expanding out into the never-ending white void and and eventually falling into the never-ending black void, um, you're hearing some sounds, and some of them are great and enjoyable, and some are a little more unpleasant. Um, Talking about every time you plant a seed and it grows, you get some sounds. For example, the green uh, has the green blocks and green seeds have this wonderful sort of bright, cheerful expansion you know, it's an upward melody. The purple and um, blue blocks have like a very clean, serene tone. Then if you have something like the, the black void, whenever you approach it, you hear these ominous horns or organs. Um, it's a very interesting soundscape that all of the, the various appearances of blocks bring into the game. Yeah, I think I've heard this game described as tending a symphonic garden. And I think that the 
it is a very sound forward game um i loved the bomb sounds like they weren't explosions they were orchestra like, hits. Synth- synthesizer <laughs> stabs you know like this is yeah. a 1980s <laughs> version of what a string section sounds like on a yamaha yeah, I agree with you totally with that. And I want someone to make like the Mario Paint version of this where you just have like this soundscape and you get to create songs on it. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee great. it's out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. But even like the the levels, like there is an initial sort of droning symphonic ambience that starts off in your overworld and then it's slightly different when you go into one of your pilgrimage worlds and then it's sort of more dark and inverted when you're in the flip side world um and there yeah interestingly enough the challenge room was completely silent um aside from the the growth air or the the growth things but yeah it was it was weird um i don't know I, i i liked what the game was doing with sound even though there's not really music to speak of in it yeah it's interesting there isn't a soundtrack to this game by any measure um but it there is, is on Bandcamp. Is there? Huh. <laughs> yeah, it's four tracks long. Um, so you'll, <laughs> you'll you'll hear that in the production of this podcast. <laughs> there we go. There we go. I'll say too. I appreciate it during this podcast. Um, Log time viewers probably know I don't pay as much attention to sound. So I always feel like I learn something when I when Brian talks about the sound of a game. Yeah, it's something that I always, almost always, pick up on. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I think this game was very intentional with its use of sound. As you mentioned, I, I really the bomb call out was a good one because like that orchestra hit the first time you hear it like explode is jarring. Usually you hear it explode and then you immediately go to the dark world because it blew up in your face. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and the way the thinking about that bomb like it resolves too like that first thing when you plant it it doesn't sound incomplete but then when you hear the second one and then you it it feels like it resolves to it so nicely that when you hear it the first time the next time you're like where's that next thing gonna happen it's like someone doing shave and a haircut and leaving out (laughs) two bits (laughs) <laughs> yeah that, that's interesting the, the the use of like chords um to you know signal a, a need for a resolution is definitely uh well observed and very subtle though too like mm-hmm. not something i would think the first time i heard that sound mm-hmm. yeah it's just uh it's well done like it they, they were clearly thinking about like how each of the seeds works in the world and interacts and then picking a very fitting sound for it like most choices in this game it seems very intentional there's a reason why it's just a white void behind you right like they could have put a background there right um Uh but they didn't um because the idea is that there's nothing and you have no indication that there's anything out there and it, it sort of it's kind of discouraging you implicitly from going out <laughs> it because it's just it's just white. Just stop. There's nothing out here. And then, you know, you continue to grow and expand and eventually you find, uh, you know, your black star or your other gray island and you're like, oh, shit. And that's that's like the moment the game is at its best, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Like this game was kind of um, a standard bearer for minimalism in games, which I think was kind of a design uh a design genre that was coming into vogue around that time as well in terms of just like website design and everything. Everything had to be minimalist for a little while. Um, And this game was kind of like applying that to video games as well. Like um, I'm trying to think of another game that does minimalism better than Starseed. Maybe mini Metro, maybe mini Metro is a good call out. Um, yeah, that that's the only one that's coming to mind for me in terms of like not just its simplicity of design to bolster its theme, which is to say it's a metro map, but also its soundscape because in a similar way you're building the ambiance that makes up that game's soundtrack as you place your tracks and your features on the world.
And with that, let's grow our own symphonic island to discover our three-word reviews. My three-word review is Bridge Too Far. A few hours into Starseed Pilgrim, as I embarked on one pilgrimage after another, creating bridges and barriers, chasing stars and keys and hearts, I thought back to how far I'd come in understanding this game, and I felt good. But then, after another few hours, I had another dawning realization. That I was barely at the outset of my journey, and I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And I felt bad. What I'd realized that, at this point in my life, Starseed Pilgrim was a bridge too far. I really like when a game lets a player discover systems for themselves. The combination of that with an extremely high likelihood of making no progress at all was discouraging. The game's nested challenges are only ever fully understood through hard-won experimentation, and even then it's only through increasingly risky and unlikely feats of puzzling and platforming that you'll manage to make any additional progress at all from there. And so while I admire Starseed Pilgrim and I respect what it's doing, it is unfortunately a bridge too far for me. Oh, that's totally fair. Totally fair. My three-word review for Starseed Pilgrim is Paths Less Traveled. To me, Starseed Pilgrim is a game that will always remind me of a very specific time in the indie game saga, one perhaps inextricably tied in with my personal life. When it first came out, I remember being impressed with the vibe that Starseed was going for. I also remember being completely baffled about how to play the game. I wasn't playing it right, for reasons that we discussed earlier. So years later, I was happy to come back to it again and experience what it was going for. I kind of feel like the early 2010s were a sort of critical junction for indie games. They've had some successes and breakout hits, and indie game studios started sprouting up like mushrooms. There was a confluence of factors here, the App Store Gold Rush, Microsoft's XNA framework, and, I think most importantly, the opening up of Steam through the Greenlight program. Starseed represented a particular type of game, one willing to be more abstract and rely on design values over production values. I think it's a vital type of game for the medium, even if Steam has, over the years, started to move away from this experimental genre. Starseed Pilgrim is, in a way, it was part of the fork in the road. It's hard for me to think about this game without thinking about that path less traveled. Interesting. Yeah, I have to agree. It's definitely sort of a a confluence point between the artistic side of the medium and the commercial one. And, you know, they meet in the middle. A great explosion and enhancement occurs, but nothing's ever the same again after the two meet. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very true. Well, thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, then please share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. Feel free to drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds.com or hit us up at Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Brian Skersha. Take care and don't lose your way. I have to say, like, I think we both have, like, some things we like about this game and some some things we don't. I think we've made the case for... I think I I think in the body of this podcast, I didn't really thoroughly make the case against, uh, even though my three-word review, I think, jumped to that conclusion. And I think I want to just take a minute to, like, enumerate some things that, like, caused me to eventually hit the bridge too far moment, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so I think there's a few things that caused me to start to realize that this wasn't a game that I was going to be able to continue with. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way it treats a player's time, because there are so many ways in which an error, you know, making a mistake can end your run or cause you to return to your hub with no seeds and make no progress. Um, There's just too many things you can do to screw that up. You can fall off the edge of the world. You can um, simply accidentally hit the void without having the ability to get a key. Um, And all of that is underpinned by a lot of elements of this game that are quite random. So the first time you make it to a challenge gate, like the story that I recounted to you, and you realize like you thought this was a gigantic triumph and you show up basically to a, a, you know, a battlefield butt ass naked, like, 
<laughs> it, it's really like, uh, it's, yeah, it's not good. It's not a good feeling. On top of that, there's no pause key in this game. And that's, that's a killer for me. I'm getting oh, interrupted these days constantly. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, like I get it. Like with th- this game is one of those things where like the, the journey is the destination. And like, if you believe that it's worth it, you'll engage with it and plumb those depths. And I do still believe that it's worth doing that, but it just doesn't fit into my life right now. You know? I mean, it's one thing to say, like, I see there are depths here. And it's another thing to say, like, and I'm going to jump in. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can appreciate the depths from a distance. And I think that's kind of what we both did. Like, neither of us was trying to complete the game or beat the game, whatever that means in this situation. Um, yeah. But, like, I knew about the three key rooms and I never got to them or tried to beat them. And I think part of that is, um, again, on the developer. Like, I like the kind of uh, idea I've gotten from this cast in this conversation is that the systems fed into each other really well, but they weren't set up really well. And I think, again, I I, I kind of attribute that to like, it was uh, an earlier game from the developer. He didn't know then what he knows now. Um, Like if you start those challenge rooms and you start with the number of star seeds you're supposed to have, or however many you're supposed to get through there, instead of you get there and you realize you should have been stocking up before you got here, um, which wasn't a rule that was done before. Like, that's... There's no way that isn't a strike against the game. Yeah, I mean, unless, like, that is a value of the game, is, like, to to have you experience that lack, that sense of unpreparedness the first time, and then you come back and you're prepared, which is, like, it's valid. Like, you know... I'm going to I'm going to go back to my my favorites the the FromSoft Souls series and talk about Margit uh or the first big boss of Elden Ring. You know, I think that game is designed so that you show up to Margit and get your ass kicked. Um <laughs> and that that is by design, right? Like cuz like it will tell you to go back down to the peninsula and get buffed up and then you come back and it's like, yeah, now I know what I'm doing and I'm going to wipe the floor with this person. And like that feels good. And I think this game is operating under similar principles. And it's interesting to me that this did come out two years after Dark Souls. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, I'm not saying that there's necessarily even any lineage there that Draken played that and like this while this was in development or something like that. I have no idea. Um, Pure speculation could just be something in the water. There's lots of divergent design things like that or convergent design things like that that happen throughout the course of many mediums and many disciplines. But it does strike me as interesting. Well, even before Dark Souls uh, became the kind of powerhouse that FromSoft is today, it was a cult classic. And, you know, I I agree with you. That's the uh, That discourse around difficulty was in the water. And I think that's one of the things that they call it the critical circles were appreciating about Dark Souls was that unforgiving nature of like you get here and you get stomped. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if I I see this the exact same kind of design in Starseed, but also I didn't get to the same places you got to. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely felt stomped at one point. Ah, um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair enough, fair enough. Hey, we're busy parents now. We need a pause <laughs> yeah. button. <laughs> yeah, we need a fucking pause button. Note: even if your game's hard, give us a pause button. <laughs> I think part of the. Th- thing is that this game relied on randomness maybe a little too far like um even if you got to say a three key room with um 30 or 40 seeds or however many you need to get to there i think the things i saw online with the rules about seeds where you would get a pink seed every six seeds i don't know if that's true in the pink or the key rooms or not and you wouldn't get the same block twice in a row but that also means that the random number generator could serve you up like trampoline sand trampoline sand trampoline yes yep yes yeah and that sucked that was like the if you get trampoline sand you you know your trampoline sand trampoline or sand trampoline sand you know you're fucked like well because uh sand turns trampolines into sand yeah it's just the worst 
I actually, yeah. I think that's probably the block mechanic I disagree with the most in this game. Yeah, why did that have to be a thing? Like, I I agree with you there. And I was thinking about, like, should there be a, a point in this where we talk strategies? Like, ooh, what seat is next? Where should I put it? Can I make it to that star? Or, you know, what should I go up or down? Or it, And at the end of the day, like, there's so much randomness that, like, that's going to dictate what you're doing far more than, like, any sense of strategy. Or maybe this is just me talking as a relatively inexperienced um, starseed pilgrim. Um, I have no idea, you know? <laughs> like, there, yeah. there's lots of little mechanics that we didn't even talk about. Like, the fact that if you dig out space, darkness will spread across it instantly. So, like, it behooves you to place things intentionally so you don't do that. And... Yeah, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of little things in this game that, like, strategy is something that probably should be talked about more, but I feel like I was mostly just trying to stay alive. (laughs) For the most part, yeah. And I feel like there's probably a level of player above us who's able to navigate more easily. Just judging by some of these screenshots I see of people, and they're like, here's my, you know... 70 screen long starseed garden that I've built up and there's layers and mm-hmm. I just I've pretty much built a ladder over here cuz that made it easier than just jumping over everything else and it's like oh <laughs> this guy's on a different level than I am and that's okay you know I don't need to be the best super smash bros player anymore no uh, I don't know I'm, I I would never like frame it like that but it's more along the lines of like here's the thing about me and the way that I like to experience games is like, if there's more content to see, I want to see it. And that is about like where I draw the line in terms of like how far I'm willing to engage with a game. I will play Elden Ring, for example, to the point where I get to see all the cool different dungeons and biomes and areas and enemies and monsters and bosses and weapons. And then I'll stop. I'm not going to be the guy that's like doing the PVP or like, continuing to grind up my level just to make sure I'm the most powerful person or even doing new game plus really like that's I'm here to see the thing and all of it hopefully as much of it as I can reasonably and this game like puts that out on front street for the most part pretty early and then you realize that like tiny little corners of it like 0.005% is hidden behind a steel titanium spiked wall that you have to ram into with your head to get through and I just wasn't here for it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough, fair enough. But I think that is just this game finding my weakness as a gamer and, like, you know, forcefully making me disengage with it. <laughs> no, I mean, as much as for the critical acclaim that this game got when it came out, um, I think I certainly think it has its flaws. It has its great spot, uh, great parts, which I think we both kind of like narrowed in on during this cast. Totally. But it's not a perfect game. But this was a great conversation. Yeah, I think that's probably the thing that this game is best at: is making people have interesting conversations about why what works and doesn't work about this yeah. game design and why. Yeah. Like, why is this game great? Why is it terrible? And why is it both? You know, it's it's yeah. good things because it's, um, I think part of the strength of its minimalistic design is it really like hones out everything else, you know, like there's, um, it's really down to the basics with this. It's really down to the, here's your steel titanium case. Now that you've broken into the bank vault and everything, you thought you got to get a reward. No, you get, <laughs> you get a uh, knowledge that you haven't prepared adequately for this. Yeah. You, you finally entered the bank vault and it, it is presenting you with an eldritch tome. You have to decipher in order to continue. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, great. You're in the ancient, or you're in the bank vault. How is your ancient Sanskrit? Yeah, exactly. Uh, something you're entirely unprepared for. Oh no, I've been studying Egyptian numerology this whole time. Uh, do have a small announcement to make. Um, I'll be giving a talk at a roguelike conference. Oh, nice. Cool. When and where and give the context. 
Uh, at the it's called Celebration of Roguelikes. I don't know if you've heard of it before, um, but they they do like virtual ones for the past few years with the pandemic and everything. Last year was actually pretty cool. Someone made a um, ASCII roguelike conference room that you would go in, <laughs> and you could like go to the bar and order a procedurally generated cocktail or things like that. So it was really cool. They've had some quirky roguelike talks over the years. And um, I'll be giving one on um, procedural puzzle generation from Moondrop. Nice. Well, that's awesome, man. Congrats on uh, on that opportunity. And uh, we'll make sure to get some uh, links to your appearance if it's able to be shared uh, as soon as that happens. Hey, oh, yeah, it'll be October 21st or 22nd. Awesome. Well, yeah everyone out there look out for josh uh, a, a natural question to follow on from that is is starseed pilgrim a roguelike but we should save that for post roll <laughs> <laughs> i think starseed is secretly a hitman <laughs> oh man <laughs> uh clint's rolling right now uh, agent 47 <laughs> you had your mission <laughs> Good job, Agent 47. Nice job getting that key. Now head for the exit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it I mean, is actually it's very... Not a hit wow. man. All right. Yep. Okay. Yep. You got me there. It's it's a hitman. You put on disguises. <laughs> your quote unquote other pilgrims. Yeah. No, that's true. And uh, there's the same folded game design situation where you uh, go back through the level to escape at the end. That's, uh, wow. Okay. Well, that's a strong start as any. Let's go ahead and start this podcast before we burn too much cast. Uh. <laughs> Sounds good.